Welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast, where our job is to help you build visibility, professional credibility, and connection with your ideal client by putting the human at the center of innovative marketing so you can build and strengthen an engaging, enduring relationship with your ideal clients. I'm Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz, and I'm honored that you're here with me. If you haven't yet joined our wonderful Flywheel Nation community, go to flywheelnation.com and join in the podcast conversations. Do subscribe to the show and also leave a review because it helps others find us. Let's get into today's masterclass on this InnovaBuzz podcast. I think deciding where you'll play, making sure that the innovation function is staffed yes. adequately and isn't asked to deliver uh, results before it has the information to do that's important, but then uh, learning about the spaces you want to innovate. That's all. Now, I think executives, but it may not be at the very top, also need to learn how to do learning reviews. So they need to know that when you're in the customer discovery stage, what are the reasonable questions to ask? How do you ask them? How do you interpret them? How do you help guide the, the team? When you're doing business model innovation, what are the reasonable questions to ask? How, what experiments might you expect to be done to learn about them and so forth? So that they're, they're asking good questions that will move the program forward. Welcome back. I hope your week's been awesome so far. I'm really excited today to have joined me on the InnovaBuzz podcast as my guest, Jim Eichner. He's the Honorary Professor at the Aston Business School in the UK, and he's also Editor-in-Chief of Research Technology Management, a peer-reviewed journal for practitioners of innovation, technology, and research management. Jim was previously Vice President of Global Innovation at the Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company, where he led the development of new businesses and helped launch five businesses on three continents. Prior to his work at Goodyear, Jim held positions as Vice President of Growth Strategy and Innovation at Pitney Bowes Incorporated and Vice President of Network Systems Advanced Technology at Bell Atlantic, which is now Verizon. Jim has worked in the field of intelligence systems for over 25 years. In his consulting practice, he helps companies to implement businesses enabled by emerging technologies, which include AI, the Internet of Things, automation, and predictive analytics. If you'd like a peek behind the curtain into how we put together this show, the InnovaBuzz podcast, then go to innovabiz.co forward slash flywheel where you can access a free gift that my team and I made for you. A short audio book that walks you through every single step of the entire InnovaBuzz flywheel. We want to give you everything you need to transform your marketing and your podcast into a human-centered, relationship-focused growth engine. In our conversation today, Jim talked to me about innovation in large versus small organizations and how each 
need to be approached differently. We talked about the importance of really getting to know your customers, even literally walking in their shoes. And we talked about what a lead user is and how they are immensely valuable for innovation. Without further ado then, let's fly into the hive and get the buzz from Jim Eichner. Hi, I'm your host Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz and I'm really excited to welcome today to the InnovaBuzz podcast from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina in the USA, Jim Eichner, who's a partner at Outside Insight Consulting. He's honorary professor at Aston Business School in the UK, and he's also editor-in-chief of Research Technology Management. Welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast, Jim. It's a great privilege to have you as my guest. Thank you. Very nice to join you. Now, in your latest book, Lean Startup in Large Organizations, you explore why attempts at innovation so often fail in the corporate setting. And um, I've got my own stories that I've lived through with that. And I'm sure there's lots of others that uh, you know of, and you describe some in the book. And certainly the listeners will be familiar with many. Uh, I'm really looking forward to digging into that and learning more about your take on Lean Startup and why it's um, it's fraught with danger in a larger setting than just small business or startup operations. But before we start talking about all things Lean Startup and innovation, what's the impact you're having in the world, Jim? Well, <laughs> that's a very good question. You, you always ask yourself that question. Uh, <laughs> it's easier to see in retrospect. Uh, you, you know, my focus has been on how do you make innovation work inside large companies. And so I started my career really doing process innovation, working in what's now Verizon, uh, using technologies to improve internal operations. And then I worked at Pitney Bowes on new product innovation and at Goodyear on launching new businesses. Now, each of those, as you climb that ladder, as I would say, it gets more challenging from an organizational perspective. I hope my contribution is helping people to understand uh, what kind of positive approaches you can use to overcome the organizational challenges. Yeah. Now, in in your book, you talk about the organizational challenges at length, that um, um, innovation or so let's say somebody has a great idea, they want to innovate, it's a new product or it's a new service, and in the lean, traditional lean startup methodology, you'd kind of experiment, you'd go straight out to customers, you'd test to see whether that's working or not, and yet in, in large corporations that doesn't seem to happen. There seems to be a lot of internal resistance to getting things moving forward unless unless you can line up all the ducks and... and um, and lots of other factors. So what what are some of those challenges in a large organization? Yeah, I think the first thing I'd like to say is I think lean startup works, and I think it works in whatever setting if what you're trying to do is create the new business. You're trying to move from a high amount of uncertainty, as Eric Ries said, to one of lower uncertainty, where you can uh, move and, and bet on uh, scaling the business. So I think it works in both, uh, in both cases. In fact, I don't, for new business innovation, I don't know anything that, uh, compares in terms of its ability to, uh, drive from an idea or a concept or an area of opportunity 
into a business. What I've noticed in uh, in practicing this and in talking with others who have tried to practice it um, is that the very practices that work in creating the new business induce resistances in the in the corporate context. Yeah, and those that those resistances don't exist outside the corporate context because there is no corporate context. You've mm. got to you've got a different set of stakeholders to deal with. So uh, there there are several of them, but as you as you mentioned, the experimentation, the customer intimacy, the interactive pivot and persist, all that works and I think is necessary mm. inside a large company. As soon as you want to go out and demonstrate something to a customer or observe a customer at length, you tend to get resistances. You get resistances from intellectual property lawyers who are concerned <laughs> that you'll share something you shouldn't. You get resistance from sales that doesn't want you so, creating an impression in yeah. the customer that may not be delivered. You get resistances from procurement if you're trying to do an experiment using uh, some technology that you've purchased. And it, it go, the list goes on. Marketing is concerned that you might in some way upset the brand. The first thing I'd say is these are not, uh, you know, not ill-informed resistances. Mm. They make sense. If I were sitting in their shoes, I'd probably do the same thing, things that they're doing because they have a clear job one. Their clear job one is to make the core business work and grow and be profitable. And anything that disrupts that is problematic. So when you try lean startup within that, you know, the, the first part, which is what I, I would call how you uh, learn the experimentation, the pivots, the minimum viable products. The biggest challenges are with uh, with the functions and creating some sort of structure that helps everybody feel like this is a process that's under control and that we're not going to be blindsided later by something you decide to do now. Those help. And there are approaches for doing it. Some of them may seem antithetical to some lean startup practitioners because, uh, you know, anytime you try to gate something, it sounds like it's overly formal. Yeah, yeah. But you can, uh, in, you can engage, you can enact the principles of lean startup in stages. And, and that's what I had recommended. In the first stage, it's all about customer discovery, customer value, estimation, reactions to that. In the second, it's all about, uh, creating the business model. In the third, it's about incubating and learning how to scale. And you can do all sorts of experimentation within those, but if you have checkpoints between them, it gives everybody more of a sense of uh, that this is a managed process. Hmm. Yeah, I d I had to laugh there when you you outlined all the different potential resistances because I've lived through all of them You've in them. in um, in an organisation where we actually implemented a, a, a version of Stagegate which involved a lot of lean startup principles and and there was like they were all the classic ones uh, the lawyers were the or the uh, patent attorneys were the first to get involved no no you can't talk to the customer at the beginning because uh, that might disclose something that later we want to patent and so it's been disclosed it's in the public domain kind of thing we had sales saying no, we can't have the researchers go out to talk to customers and find out what they really want because that's our job to talk to manage that customer interface. The researchers have got to be in the back room and and yeah, you know, exactly. they I mean, just do are... what we tell them to do. And and so the solution we had to that was 
building these cross-functional teams, getting everybody involved at the beginning. And so there was kind of a separate organisational structure that wasn't the line structure. So it wasn't the salesperson reporting to the sales manager, to the sales director and the marketing and so on. It was, um, here's the project team. There's There was a designated project lead. And for that particular project, um, everybody, regardless of which um, vertical chimney we called them they were in um, yeah. basically that person the project lead was the coordinator and the leader of that activity and so that's how it kind of overcame that but tell me a little bit more about your three-step or three categorization process because I'm really keen to understand that some more yeah I, I would say you know that w to the extent that you can form those cross-functional teams the better off you'll be uh, especially because those people have reach into their host organizations. They have credibility. They mm. speak the language. They can understand the concerns and bring them back. Um, you're still going to have uh, issues with an intellectual property attorney or procurement mm. unless you sit down and just listen to let, Let's say take the intellectual property attorney. What is your concern? Our concern is you'll disclose something that's valuable uh, and that we will lose the opportunity to patent. Well, what is a, a public disclosure? Well, it's not showing it to a customer. It's a public disclosure. It's a publication or it's a presentation at a show or in a public environment. We found that, and, and I was doing this in the 90s, um, you could just tell the customer or have a small, simple one-paragraph form that said, we're going to be sharing some information that might be confidential will you agree not to share it with others? And they say, yes. And you say, good. Hmm. And that's not disclosure. And I've never, ever had uh, the situation where that came back and bit us. Hmm. But it requires a, a dialogue. That's Similarly, right. if you hmm. talk to procurement, procurement's big concern is that you'll lock them in. There are two concerns. One, you'll lock them into a supplier without the chance to bid it out, and therefore you'll be disadvantaged. And the second is... Um, that uh, uh, I've lost my thread here. That, so the uh, one is that you'll uh, you'll lock them in before they uh, before they fully uh, you fully understand. It. And the other is you'll give them information in the process of uh, of doing your trials and experiments with them that uh, cause them to have information that will just deposition you from a negotiating perspective. Hmm. Well, the the solution around that is to understand. We're going to pilot. If we get to the stage where we want to go to scale, we'll go through all the processes you really need for us to go through. And so we'll keep you in the loop. We'll buy things off the shelf. You'll help us with that. If we get to the point where we want to scale, we will commit that we won't make any commitments before then. The common theme is just listen to what the concerns are. Try to unpack them because many of the concerns are, uh, you know, they're, they're sort of, Free-floating anxieties—they're not articulated further. And if you unpack them, you can understand how to go how to go forward. With respect to the three stages, and and I'll talk about how that connects back to this discussion with the functions. The first stage is really a discovery phase, and everybody goes through this. You're trying to understand what the customer wants. You're doing prototypes. You're iterating. You're getting their feedback. You're trying to understand what they think in 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 practice as opposed to in theory. 
And the deliverable is a customer value proposition and some sense of how much value you create and for how many customers. That's all about the customer. It's nothing about the business model. You can do all sorts of iteration inside that without obligating anyone to anything. The, the second phase is the business model. This is where things start getting a bit dicey because most companies have a very established business model and they're concerned that you'll threaten the core business. In other words, the new business will be made to look great by virtue of the fact that it cannibalizes or in another way and in another way hurts uh, the, uh, the core business. So when you're doing the business model uh, development, you have to do it with two eyes open. One on how can I create a business to capture value from this innovation, and it's often not the core business model. And the second is, how can I at least understand what the effects of that will be on my core business, especially on those assets I want to borrow as part of my business? If you do that and you're open about it, uh, you can make progress. I don't say that goes completely smoothly, but at least it, uh, you, you can make progress. Then when you're in incubation, which is the final stage, you're in market uh, at a small scale in some part of the world, and you're learning about, can I make it profitable? Are the customers buying it? And you're trying to understand what's the best way to scale this business. Is it organically? Is it through acquisition? Is it through some sort of reorganization internally? You're trying to understand your options for scale. So all of, in, in lean startup, all that stuff's happening at the same time. The business model, the customer value proposition, how you'll think about scale. You're doing it all at once because you're in business as early as you can be. In a large company, you generally delay that decision and, yeah. and uh, measure it over time. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are about in the business model phase. I guess this applies. And this comes from my experience working for ACFA in the time when digital photography was first born. And the response essentially, well, at the end of the day, after lots of soul searching and hair, uh, yeah, hand wringing and pulling out of hair and so on. And, and some of us young, young fellas saying we better pay attention to this. Um, but we didn't have a lot of clout because we were fairly new in the organization. The, at the end of the day, the bottom line was we just need to make better film because this is never going to be any good. How do, how do you suggest an organization approaches that business model phase in that sort of situation? And, and alternatively, I mean, the corollary to that is the situation where there's an idea internally, let's say, um, well, Polaroid, for example, invented digital photography and clearly they didn't do anything with it because there was the potential there, obviously, that it was going to cannibalize its core business. So how do you deal with those kind of situations? Right. That's what Christensen called the innovator's dilemma. Mm. Um, and, they, uh, and it's always, I, I think most companies will try to serve their current customers better on the dimensions of merit that have been historically important whether that's cost or quality or speed or uh, adaptability to new uh, equipment or whatever it is, and uh, or size, whatever it is. When new dimensions of merit start to become important, uh, and they may be even the medium by which it's mm. delivered, as it was in the, in the camera and, and photography industry, 
companies tend to overinvest in the old and underinvest in the new. And part of the reason for that is it's very easy for them to do the math on the new things. They know that if I introduce this new product, got this whole track record of uh, how I'll market it, what my sales will be, how I think I'll increase my penetration in a particular segment and so forth. And the new, they've got no idea about. They don't know how big the market is. They don't know in particular how fast it will take to develop. And uh, so so what do, you, what do you do? And I, I think the uh, the best thing to do is first to, to decide on the areas of opportunity that you want to pursue. And digital photography at Agfa would have been one. Hmm. Uh, at Goodyear, one of the ones we selected was uh, services, uh, advanced services outside uh, the core product business. Uh, in other words, at, at Pitney Bowes, which was mainly a mailing company, we were looking at opportunities in secure devices. You pick an area that's large enough to matter and that you have some reason to win in. So you have assets that you can bring to bear. And then you commit to it. And you, you commit to it through ideas that succeed and ideas that fail. And you learn as you, uh, as you innovate. And you've got, I, I think at this point in the history of the world, you pretty have, much have to have that separate mm. in many ways from the core business. At least the, the P&L or the expenses and the resources and maybe even some of the culture have to be different from the core if you're doing this new business or disruptive type of innovation. Now, you better not get so separate that you can't leverage those assets that you started out wanting to leverage, or you don't have any right to win. There's going to be a startup that's more agile, has more money, and can uh, and can outcompete you. But if you've got assets that you can leverage, you have to make the decision about how you'll maintain enough relationship with that core business to benefit both and to leverage those assets. When you've got something truly disruptive, like digital photography was to film, it's a, you know, the big choice and different companies made it differently. Kodak tried to pivot into digital photography and had a whole division just like what we're talking about. A new CEO folded it back into the core business to save overhead and the core business killed it. Um, I, I guess the, uh, Fuji, decided, look, our core competency is chemical processing yeah. and film-like products. And they expanded into alternate spaces that leverage those core capabilities. There are different ways of competing. Um, generally, if it's going to be outside the core business model, it's, it's what Tushman called uh, ambidextrous leadership. You have to, and he called it structural ambidexterity, one place that does the explore of that radically new space and one group of people that focuses on maximizing or exploiting mm. the, the core business. I still think that's very valid. And I think for the, the lean startup is extremely powerful in the explore yeah. area. What a lot of companies have forgotten is that you can't separate it completely or you lose your right to win. You can't just create a little incubator somewhere in Austin or San Francisco and I uh, hope that it all reconnects. That's kind of the lesson of Xerox that uh, really invented the office of the future and exploited none of it yeah, yeah. because it was too separate from the core business. Mm. Yeah, lots of lots of um, interesting scenarios there. One of the keys that you talked about in, in the process, and, and this is quarterly startup, of course, is 
really getting to know the customer and the customer needs and what they what they're after. Um, and in terms of, uh, I always use this example in terms of the film industry, where in those days it was pretty clear that at ACFA, and I'm guessing it was the same at all the film manufacturers, we thought we were in business or we thought that the customer wanted photographic film and photographic paper to take photos. And yet if you kind of think about it in hindsight and chunk that up a bit, what we were really doing was enabling people to capture memories in some format. And mm-hmm. if you think about it in those terms, then you say, well, how else could you capture that memory? You know, it could be as simple as, well, it doesn't have to be um, a... I mean, in those days, videotapes were already available, so it doesn't have to be a chemical film process. It could be a magnetic videotape that you then play on the on the television, on, on your video recorder. Um, and then when digital came out, Obviously, so well, that's that's another way to capture memories. So, which one or which ones are going to survive in the long term and be developed? How do you how do you see getting to know the needs of the customer and and looking at it from that sort of perspective to say, well, what is it that we're really doing, or what is the customer really wanting to achieve here? Right, right. Because if you ask the customer, they'll say, "Yeah, I want better film, yeah, yeah. cheaper film, or faster processing, or whatever." Um, and the, uh, I, I think what what happened in in this case is that people were willing to give up something, namely quality in the early days, especially mm. for something else, mm. which was uh, the ability to share yeah. easily, and the ability to take and lots of pictures mm. and select from them, the ability to have it instantly. Uh, and and also the the cost. And then it turned out also the ability to make memes and share and mm. all sorts of social aspects. How do you figure that stuff out? I think you can't think it out, and you probably can't learn it directly from your existing customers. But one thing that uh, Eric von Hippel, who I've uh, worked with over the years at MIT, he studied lead users and lead user communities, mm. and I think that. And, and he, he's showed me when I didn't believe it, that there are lead users in almost every industry. And in some, they're responsible for the great majority of the, uh, functionally novel innovation. So what's the lead user? A lead user who has such a compel, is someone who has such a compelling need for something that they're willing to try to make it for themselves if the manufacturer is not doing it already. Mm. And, uh, increasingly in the age of the internet, it's happening more because it's easy to form communities online. It's easier to find the people who have interests like yours. Um, Eric and a colleague, uh, Sandra Kula have, have developed a, uh, an algorithmic approach of finding, uh, lead users by, uh, crawling the web basically. But essentially there you're trying to say, who's doing something interesting in my space that I might want to know about and I might want to build on? And I'll bet, I don't know this is the case, but I'll bet if you had daisy-chained to lead users in the film industry or the photography industry at that point, you would have found people who were doing stuff with digital, but it wasn't replicating what was being done with film. It was using digital because they wanted to send it quickly to somebody else. 
Mm-hmm. Or they wanted the, the ability to do more significant editing. Or some of the, you would have seen the weak signals, the early signals of the things that later came to dominate the industry. Um, and at Pitney Bowes, we were in the mail business. The mail business was in first-class single-piece mail, was in clear decline. A very, very profitable business. We tried to understand what are people doing with messaging. I think we we got a good handle on what people were doing, but didn't have the uh, the level of commitment or belief uh, or justification to make the big bets in that space. So you really have to do two things. You have to find the weak signals, learn about them, and it may be your non-customers, and in, and observing and maybe joining the community, and then uh, saying, what does this mean, and where should I make a bet, or where should I explore further? When we at Goodyear were trying to understand what's happening with consumer fleets like Uber, hmm. uh, one of the guys said, well, only way I'm going to know is I'm going to be an Uber driver. <laughs> and he had some good experience yeah, and some yeah. bad experience <laughs> as an Uber driver. But he knew something then about the economics of it, about the attitudes, because he joined uh, groups of other Uber drivers, hmm. about how they felt about the work, how they made it work for them, etc. Anyway, that's the, that. I guess that, that's the best way I could say yeah. To sort of see around the corners. Hmm. Um, yeah, I love love that idea of the lead user, and I see examples of that all the time because I'm the sort of person that loves to get involved in some of the beta testing of of software products that are out there. And I'm in several communities, and I always put my hand up if it's something that I think could be of use to me. And I always give feedback, and uh, often that feedback is, "It would be great if it did this as well, or or this bit." I don't like the way it does this, and and a good company will take that feedback on board, and often um, with those users, they can actually influence and shape the final product. So that that's a, a really yeah. great approach. I was just you, thinking, you I had to want... laugh. I had to laugh when you're talking about the Uber driver experience because one of the thoughts that came to mind with film that film analogy. I was having a conversation the other day about. Um, a historical event, which was the U2 spike plane incident, uh, where um, you know, they were spying on Russia with this spy plane from very high levels and taking photographs. Now, uh, one of the things that came out of that conversation was, well, you know, the issue was they had to get the film back to the laboratory to develop before they could uh, look at the pictures and analyze the pictures. And if you think of anything in spying in those days, they had to get, you know, they had to physically get the film that they captured, um, you know, often at great risk, personal risk to themselves. They had to get that film physically back to a laboratory to develop. And then, um, then there were a lot of people that actually handled this sensitive material before it got to those that, that needed to see it and analyze it and take action. So that was a case where, hey, you know, how, can you do this easier? And digital obviously enables that to be done a lot easier. Yeah, that's an example of, of an extreme need. Someone who has an extreme need for something is likely the one who's going to do the uh, do the innovation in that space. And, and uh, they may end up calling on the film company or the camera company to help, um, and that's a way of learning. I think when you do it, if someone, if someone like if there's a question that comes up in a user forum, it would be great if it did this. 
uh, the the right approach is to say that's interesting. Why would it be great if it did? Yeah, that? yeah. What's the bigger problem you're trying to solve? Mm. Do you know anyone else who has the same problem? Are there any problems that are related to that? So that you end up uh, now maybe you're not going to put them all into your next product, but you end up with a uh, a different sense of mm. what the intent is, and then you can make better decisions on the product. And sometimes, as you talked about in the film area, uh, it's going to be it can't be our core product. It has to be fundamentally different. Even if it meets some of the same customer needs, it's got to be fundamentally different to meet this future need. Mm. Yeah, so asking better questions than in in those conversations where somebody's giving feedback and saying it'd be great if it did this or it shouldn't shouldn't really do this. Right, exactly. But if you're uh, take your pick the, the case of you and we've all been in it where you see, you saw the digital camera coming mm. and you were a, a young engineer or scientist and people didn't pay attention because you were a young engineer or scientist. You can go out and find these lead users. You can go out and learn from them on your own time or on company time. And you can bring back data mm. that says, did you know people are doing this? And they may say, well, I don't care. That's like three people. Yeah. But you're, now you've got your antennas open. You can start seeing things in a different way. You're flagging uh, what comes across your desk differently. Hmm. Yeah, and, and you've got a different story to tell, right, than, than I believe from what I've read and from my own experience, this is right. where it's going to go or this is what could happen um, if you come back and say, well, we've got people that are using and doing these things and, and they're saying this is what we need, then it's a different story. Completely. Mm. You may have to explore it because they might use different language than you use. Mm. And so one of the, with any kind of user work, you have to make sure you're, you first are humble enough to learn their language and, uh, and try to search and learn in terms that they would use to describe what they're doing. And so there, it takes a bit of yeah, doing yeah. as you which is Which is why the... Becoming the Uber driver was a, a really good experience because you actually immerse yourself in their world and learn their yes. language and mm, yes. love it. Yes, exactly. All right. Um, so we talked about asking really good questions. Uh, one of the things in the internal world, and we, we spoke about this earlier um, with the resistances and implementing a version of Lean Startup and, and stage-gating it, in an organization, how can a leader kind of ask the right questions there to get at the core of why certain people are resisting this process or are resisting how we're, we're wanting to make a change here? Um, you know, you talked earlier about um, each function having a primary responsibility and, and they've got a process that they work through to fulfill that responsibility and um, and they don't sort of look beyond the bigger picture, but the people kind of trying to drive the change are also not looking beyond the bigger picture and understanding. So what are some of the questions the leader needs to ask to kind of get at the core of this and bring people together? Yeah. So they're, uh, if you're, are you talking about the innovation leader or the leader of the uh, company? Um, well, either or. Let's start with yeah, the leader sure. of the company because that's that's kind of the yeah. top level, right? Big picture, right? 
Right at the at the top level, I think uh, the first question is to sort of, as we discussed before, decide where you want to innovate, especially if you're doing not for the more incremental innovation, mm. but for breakthrough or new business innovation, and then get the uh, his peers or his his staff aligned behind that mission, and that's important because then when the innovation team comes with ideas that fit within that space. There's a, there's a bit more permission for the functions to help. It also helps if the leader makes that explicit. They say that we expect you to help. Maybe, maybe it, it fits on an objective. Maybe it's just a permission, but, uh, but that helps. It helps if there are additional resources that can be available, even if it's just pay for service by the innovation team so that you're not moving people away from their day job to support you. So all of, all of those things are, uh, are helpful in that space. Being able to share, uh, so, so that's the, the first thing the leader does is, is try to provide some degree of air cover, uh, around the innovation initiative and some clarity about where you're going. But the leader himself or herself, at some point, if they're going to make the big bet, they need to get personally engaged in the new space. So if you're at one point at Pitney Bowes, we were exploring document management in uh, healthcare and hospitals in particular. The people who were making the decision about whether we would pursue that had not ever been and talked to the customers who, even the ones with whom we did the pilot. Hmm. So they were operating more from a perspective of fear of the unknown. They didn't know that they thought maybe hospitals are a bad market for the following reasons. Uh, they thought that there would be other issues that we might not be able to handle. The regulatory issues, for example. That, that's fine. Those are all legitimate questions. But until you get the countervailing sense of, wow, customers really would like this. This could create a lot of value. People want it. They're pulling it. And you get that firsthand. Uh, you won't. Uh, you won't really make the bets. VCs do this, right? A VC mm. will say, I'm focusing on green energy technologies, and they'll look at a 100 startups, and they'll not just look at the brief, they'll visit, they'll understand uh, who's in the space, why they're in the space, who the key players are, who else is part of the ecosystem, etc. CEOs don't necessarily have the time to do this at that level of depth, but they need to, ex to some extent, spend time in the spaces that they think are the future spaces for the company. Mm. So if, you, if, you, if they don't have good future spaces, they'll never make the time to go out into them. If they do, then they nay. And if they make that time, you have a much greater chance that uh, when the time comes to make a bet, they'll be prepared to make a good bet or not make a good bet, uh, not make a bet because it's not a good bet. Yeah. Uh, so th those are some some thoughts. I think mm. uh, deciding where you'll play, making sure that the innovation function is staffed yeah. adequately and isn't asked to Staff deliver uh, results before it has the information to do so. That's important. But then uh, learning about the spaces you want to innovate. That's all. Now I I think executives, but it may not be at the very top, also need to learn how to do learning reviews. So they need to know that when you're in the customer discovery stage, what are the reasonable questions to ask? How do you ask them? How do you interpret them? How do you help guide the, the team? When you're doing business model innovation, 
What are the reasonable questions to ask? How, what experiments might you expect to be done to learn about them? And so forth. So that they're, uh, they're asking good questions that will move the program forward. I've worked with people who were, uh, you know, they would go from a meeting where they got beat up on product sales in, uh, until 11. Then they went into an innovation meeting at, at 11 o'clock and we're talking about spending money on experimenting in this very, uh, you know, hypothetical space to learn about customer needs. And it makes their head spin. Mm. You know, it's like, I can't, I can't do some basic stuff I know I need to do in the core. Why are we doing this? And that leads you to ask questions more like, why are we doing this? Mm. Is this really worth it? I don't think the customers are there. Prove it to me. You know, that kind of thing, rather than the questions that will help, uh, move the innovation forward or decide it's not worth moving forward. Mm. So there, there, I think there are a whole set of questions yeah. that, uh, or, you know, they're not rocket science questions, but they're questions you need to know, and you need to know when to ask them, and you need to know how to listen mm. to the results. Yeah, that, that's um, what we call listening, and then um, digging deeper, um, which we talked about earlier as well, digging deeper into why why that response to the question and, yeah, what's, what's underpinning that. Okay. Mm. All right, this is fabulous, Jim. I think it's a good point now to move on to the buzz, which is our innovation round. Um, same five okay. questions that I ask of every guest. We call it the buzz. <clears throat> and uh, the idea is you'll inspire the listener to go and take some action today and, and be awesome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so what's the number one thing you think anyone needs to do to be more innovative? I, I think... It, I think the number one thing is to really focus on the customer and understanding the customer and not to go at the world, not, not to understand the customer through focus groups or surveys on that comes later, but to understand them by being there yeah, in situ yeah. and not for the tour, be there beyond the mm. tour. Um, I, I think, uh, you, you know, when, when we've done ethnography that was powerful and surfacing new needs, it was uh, a lot of time on site with a number of, co uh, of companies. Um, otherwise, you'll see what everybody else sees. Mm. Uh, you, you won't see the emerging needs. Yeah. yeah, that's a really good point, and, and particularly to not just for the tour, because you think of the tour, it's kind of like the politician coming in for a media opportunity, and they show their best face, of course. You don't see where there's gaps in their manufacturing process or, or where there's... You know, issues that they have around safety or whatever it might be, which are opportunities then obviously for, um, for improvement. Yes. My, my favorite example of that from my own career was when I spent like three, three and a half hours in a manhole. I was working for the telephone company. I was trying to understand what we could do to support technicians who are splicing fiber. And so we went out to visit technicians who are splicing fiber. Mm -hmm. So I went into the manhole and the first 20 minutes, He's telling me, well, we do this, and then, you know, this is the procedure. I coordinate with this person in this way. I uh, test it here. Then we use this database. And then he said, you know, okay, uh, any other questions? Because i got to get back to work. Yeah. And I said, well, really, I'm here to watch you do the work. So please, feel free to go back to work. And then immediately he started doing nothing like what he said he did. <laughs> he said, you know, he, he, uh, he picked up his personal cell phone to call someone instead of using the communication because... 
he wanted to call a friend, not the person who they'd put on the other end. Mm. And he, uh, he had to pump out the hole and use different, uh, equipment than was advised. And he didn't use the database for, I don't remember what reason. But the point of the matter is, there's a, uh, what people tell you in the tour mm. is the normative view. Yeah. It's the way things are supposed to happen. What you observe is how they do happen. Yeah. And that's where all the opportunity is. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's a beautiful example. All right, now the best thing you've done to develop new ideas. I I think the uh, using the lead start, lean startup mm. approach inside corporations, but using it, and I, I don't, a lot of times people try to use a piece of it. They'll use the minimum viable product or they'll say they're doing a business experiment. I think you really almost have to adopt the pieces as a whole. Oh, yeah. Um, if you don't, if you don't have a discipline around the practice, if you're not tracking your learning, if you're not doing a really good job of designing very focused business experiments, if you're not making the minimum viable prototype really minimum, then you don't get the speed, you don't get the energy, you don't learn. Mm. And so uh, I think it's uh, it's a, a very powerful practice. That's why I wrote the book. I think it works in large companies. I've talked with Steve Blank and others, uh, Eric Reese. It's hard to make it work inside large companies. And I think it's because you got to do lean startup, which is itself has its own challenges. And you have to do practices that help it work in the corporate setting. You don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, but you have to you have to attend to things associated with the context in which you're operating. Mm-hmm. So it's important to bring the whole the whole package together, but then adapt it to the context it's operating. You're operating with. I, I think so. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I think so. Excellent. All right. What's a favorite resource of yours you use most often? I. By that you mean a, a podcast, a uh, could be. I, I edit a journal. You edit. Yeah, I, I edit a journal, uh, which is research technology management, mm. and that means I read the journal, but I also read about five times as many articles as end up in the journal. Mm. And I think that that's my uh, one of my best ways of uh, of keeping up with what's happening on lean startup and on related things. I think Steve Blank's blog is excellent. Mm. I, uh, you know, I always read it because it's always interesting. And, uh, so, uh, I, I try to stay tapped into that community and into the broader, uh, sort of R&D community. Um, I listen to podcasts. I'll, uh, have another one to listen to after, after this because I haven't in the past, uh, listened to this one. Hmm. Great. All right. Well, we're glad to have you as a listener. And um, yes. yeah, I don't remember Steve's episode number. He he was on the show. We had a fascinating conversation about all things lean startup. So I certainly we'll link back to that in the show notes so people can refer back to that. And I'm sure we link to his blog there. And he certainly writes lots of interesting articles and very prolific too. Yes. All right. What's the best way to keep a client on track? I. I think that the uh, they're sort of embedded in lean startup, mm. but whatever the project is, I think agile approaches are the things that I find to be most helpful when you're dealing with something that is uh, got got uncertainty or a significant amount of uncertainty associated with it. Um, so being in close touch touch with your user or your customer, making priorities in a dynamic way mm. as the agile approach advocates. 
and keeping track and sharing that. I think that's the best way of keeping projects on track. Now, that sometimes means you decide to do something that you decided previously you wouldn't do, and it sometimes means you decide not to do something that you thought was important before, but that's good. I I think I'd rather rather not develop something uh, that isn't on target with what the customer wants. My uh, old boss, John Thomas, used to say, uh, you know, the traditional development process is, you know, high-level design to uh, detailed design to execution to uh, beta test, you know, alpha test, beta test, and roll it out and find out nobody wants it. Yeah. And uh, and probably you're rolling it out late. Hmm. And I think that the agile approach may, makes sure that probably it's smaller and more focused, but it's, uh, it's actually what people want. Hmm. Yeah, and communication is really key on that and really sort of involving Absolutely. all stakeholders along the way, yeah, yes. which is kind of lean startup and agile and everything rolled into yeah, yeah. one. Yeah. Then they're, they're kissing cousins. Yeah. Uh, Eric Reese really brought agile into the whole experimental customer discovery hmm. uh, approach, and I think uh, I, I think it works. It, it's also, I, in my early in my career, I developed expert systems, which has sort of hmm. uh, been subsumed by uh, machine learning yeah, yeah. at this point. But it was also part of that methodology. You would go out, do a case, build the software to represent, to make that case work, do a second case, and iterate that way. And that sort of uh, case-by-case development, as distinct from figure out all the rules or all the code and then code it and then test it, uh, it just made so much sense to me at that point that I've continued to use it for my career. Mm. Love it. All right. Um, touched on another topic there, but I think that's almost uh, the expert systems is almost another uh, podcast in and of itself. As uh, you reminded me of some of the work we did on that in my corporate career. So finally, in the buzz, what's the number one thing anyone can do to differentiate themselves? You know what? I think in this world uh, where technology is moving at such a pace, there's so much to learn. There's so much potential in the technology. In that, sort of the counterintuitive thing is focusing more on the people side of things mm. and deciding that you're going to keep the, keep people at the center of your technology development will differentiate you from 98% of all the people who are developing technology. I don't just mean user requirements. Mm. I mean understanding how's this going to affect the lives of the people who are going to use it, or the people around them. And uh, is that going to be good? Um, I, I think right now uh, there's so much technology that is uh, good and bad. And the, the good is very much in front of people, but surveillance or addiction or taking people into divisive spaces or uh, making work meaningless or uh, or demeaning even. All of those things are uses of technology that are both profitable and I think bad. Mm. Uh, they're bad uses of technology. So I think uh, if people want to differentiate themselves in this world, spend some time learning about understanding the, the human side and the implications of technology for people mm. and then try to figure out how you make that case or at least how you make it to yourself so that when you, uh, you're engaged in designing or building something, 
it shines through. Yeah, yeah I love that. Um, as as um, our philosophy is making marketing and podcasting human again, it's uh, very consistent with that, <laughs> that philosophy. Yeah, so that's great. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Yeah, rather than abdicate to the technology entirely, really put the human element back into it. Yeah, and not as an overlay, as a as a core yeah. tenant. I think that's the, the I mean, when you mention it's your mission, you build on that, mm. as opposed to saying, well, we're doing podcasts, how can we make them appear to be human-friendly, yeah. as human-friendly given what we've already decided to do? I just think the human, the, the person, and maybe it's not even the direct user, but someone related to them, needs to be considered. We don't teach ethics to computer scientists and engineers. We ought to. Yeah. And there's a particular type of ethics to teach. Mm. So, so that's my, uh, that's my right. view. All right. Well, we'll, um, we'll incorporate that into the movement. Ethics for computer scientists and engineers. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> Wonderful. All right. Well, thanks, Jim. This has been a fabulous conversation. I really enjoyed it. There's so much more to, that we could explore. Now, where can people reach out? to you, find out more about the work you're doing, get a hold of your book, Lean Startup, in organizations, and maybe even reach out and say thanks for what you've shared. Oh, that'd be wonderful. Yeah, leanstartup.biz is the website. Uh, so just leanstartup.biz. And then uh, and you can, if you want, you can purchase my book there, and my blog is there, and other media appearances will be there too. And then uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn. And just uh, all, all my contact information is available there. Excellent. And we'll post those links in the show notes. And just as a little reminder for the listener, when you reach out to Jim on LinkedIn to make a connection, if you choose to do that, let him know that you heard him on our show and what you like best about the conversation. So that's the human element. Start a conversation. Don't just say, I want to connect. <laughs> yeah, wonderful. Mm. Yeah, good idea. All right. Now, finally, Jim, who else? Actually, um, I missed one question. What parting advice would you like to leave our listener today? I, I think that the, the parting advice is about, uh, and my current area of, of focus is about, you know, developing technology as if people mattered. Hmm. So uh, I, I would suggest, I think my advice would be think about that. Hmm. Think about, uh, you know, about, when you've used technology and you felt like it led you astray or was alienating or uh, just frustrating, and think about, do you do that uh, when you're developing technology and how can you, uh, how might you do that differently? I guess that'd be my, mm. my advice. Wonderful. I love it and consistent with that message of bringing the human back into the technology and putting it at the center. All right. Finally, Jim, who else should I get on this show and why? I, I was thinking about uh, that one person I would suggest uh, is Christian Cruz, who's a futurist. Mm. But uh, I've worked with him for many years, and I think uh, he just uh, he thinks about the future and how to connect it with people in organizations, not just getting an answer, but get, getting people engaged around the answer yeah. uh, better than most people. Uh, and another is uh, Andrea Cates, with whom I've worked. Uh, and I think the strategy of innovation, sort of how you make decisions about where to go next, uh, how do you make connections across the industry. I think she does a great job with that, so you might enjoy talking to either of them. All right. Well, we'll 
we'll get an introduction to Christian and Andrea from you and reach out to them to begin that conversation. So thanks for that. And, Sounds wonderful. And thanks so much for sharing your insights and your time with us so generously today, Jim. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I learned a lot. Um, reflecting back on some of my experiences and how, how I could have done some things differently and and yeah. some somehow wishing I could go back in some ways. But, um, yeah, hopefully a lot of ideas and thoughts to help people going forward. Um, and it's been wonderful. So thanks very much. Please do stay in touch and all the best. I will. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed that insightful and really engaging conversation with Jim and took something away from his episode. Having listened to our conversation today, think about new innovations you have in development. Can you identify some lead users to test the ideas, to find opportunities for improvement and to give feedback from the customer perspective? Jim's episode can be found at innovabiz.co forward slash Jim Eichner. That is J-I-M-E-U-C-H-N-E-R. All lowercase, all one word, innovabiz.co forward slash Jim Eichner. You'll also find contact information there for getting in touch with Jim, as well as links to his website, to his book, Lean Startup in Large Organisations to his social media pages and the other resources we spoke about in our conversation. Now, you know the drill. This is the point where I issue you with a challenge. If you loved our conversation today and you think it'd be useful to one other person, be brave enough to share the conversation with that one other person. And also, check out the over 500 other episodes that we've published and find another one that you think is equally as valuable to you as this episode. There's bound to be at least one there. Pick your favourite number or just glance through the list quickly. Pick a past episode and between now and the next one we publish, listen to one more of the past episodes and send me a note on LinkedIn about which episode you picked why you picked it, what your biggest takeaway was, and most importantly, what action you took as a result. Jim suggested that we have a conversation with futurist Christian Cruz and with tech strategist Andrea Cates on future InnovaBuzz podcast episodes. So Andrea and Christian, keep an eye on your inboxes for an invitation from us to the InnovaBuzz podcast, courtesy of Jim Eichner. Thanks for listening. We'd love you to leave a review on this episode so that we can get to know you and why you listen. Also, it will help us make the podcast even better for you. Simply go to lovethepodcast.com forward slash InnovaBuzz to pick your preferred platform. And you can follow the show by going to followthepodcast.com forward slash InnovaBuzz. If you'd like a peek behind the curtain, into how we put together this show, go to innovabuzz.co forward slash flywheel, where you can access a free gift my team and I made for you, a short audio program that walks you through the entire InnovaBuzz flywheel. 
We want to give you everything you need to transform your marketing and your podcast into a human-centered, relationship-focused growth engine. Tune in again to the next episodes of the InnovaBuzz podcast, where we've got yet more fantastic guests lined up. Until next time, I'm Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz. Remember, be awesome and keep innovating.